0: Hey, it's David from the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Blake and I wanted to share a new podcast that the team at Earmark Media has been working on. It's a bi-weekly podcast called Federal Tax Updates, and it's an easy way for CPAs, enrolled agents, and tax preparers to stay up to date with the latest tax information and earn both NASBA-approved CPE and IRS-approved CE it's hosted by Roger Harris and Annie Schwab that together have over 75 years of tax experience and have been featured in media outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Morning Business Report, Bloomberg Business News, and Accounting Today. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like it, please go to federaltaxupdates.com to find more episodes. And now, on to the show. Well, welcome back to another Federal Tax Update podcast. This is Roger Harris, and I'm joined, as always, by Annie Schwab. Annie, what are we talking about today?
1: Well, we've got extensions on the agenda for today and a little bit of update from the IRS, some headline news. But for the most part, we're going to talk about extensions. Um, we've made it through one deadline. We are approaching just weeks away from the April 18th deadline. So that's, on, that's what's on the agenda Talking about extensions. So if Individual you're listening to this after
0: April the 18th, about half of this you can ignore because <laughs> everything we talked about is irrelevant. But I'm assuming yeah. most of people will will hear it before then. But it's a good topic for next year if you've already passed April 18th. So that is true. All right, where do you want to start?
1: Well, I'm going to say let's start with the ERC. We haven't had a podcast so far where we haven't talked about the ERC. So before we jump into extensions. Roger, do you want to give us sort of an update of where we stand on the employee retention credit?
0: Yeah, and there's, as you said, we've touched on every podcast, partly because it seems like every two weeks something new has come out. We get a little more information, and then more questions are created. So let's talk about where we are today. And I think we have mentioned this at least on the previous podcast, if not all of them. There were some questions about, look, all of us know about the ERC mills that are out there. And they're advertising huge amounts of money, and they're actually being pretty aggressive in terms of what they're doing. And it's putting us in the tax practitioner world, I guess, at risk is a good term in the sense that Mm -hmm. what if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I got $200,000 of an employee retention credit, and I'm going to say this word, and then, Annie, I'll ask you to help me define it. You know it's wrong. Now, knowing something's wrong, believing something's wrong, thinking something's wrong is different. But the rules that we're going to talk about talk about knowing. So how would you, first Very of difficult. all, define knowing something is wrong?
1: It sounds kind of an absolute, like you are positive right. that you are, you know something is to be true or, or to be false, so to say. And, and it, that's a difficult word to, you know, there's a lot of gray areas in tax law there's facts and circumstances, and there's things that are not black and white. And and this is probably one of them. Unfortunately, the the practitioner community um, was asking for guidance, you know, tell us what to do. We are tax practitioners. Somebody comes to us. We're not sure if they really should have gotten it. Maybe they should have, maybe maybe less than what they got. Maybe Who, who knows what the scenario is. And so the community was asking, you know, tell us what do we have to document? What do we need to ask? What do we need to see? Are we responsible for it? Can we amend the returns? Can we not amend the returns? What if we truly think it's wrong? Like, Do you have to tell the client to go amend it? And so all of these sort of questions, what if scenarios came up? And because it is a lot of money and because the ERC mills have been aggressive, it's probably going to affect most tax practitioners this tax season.
0: Right. And I've been trying to think of something where, you know, because knowing is hard, as you mentioned, you know, suspecting it's wrong, believing it's wrong. But knowing it's wrong is Mm -hmm. sometimes hard. But I read actually the IRS came out with something about an hour ago about this. And one of the things that they said the mills are doing is ignoring the fact that they got a PPP loan. The business did. So, oh, goodness. so that, I guess, you'd be pretty safe to know you know what's wrong if, if the credit that was generated ignored the fact that the wages for a PPP loan can't be used for ERC. So that, you know, in that case, it's pretty clear.
1: I would say that I would be confident. You know, you can't, you, you can't double dip on the wages. So if right. the employee wages was used for the PPP, you certainly can't use it for the ERC. So that, that, that's a scenario, I would say, that you would know it was incorrect.
0: So here's what the IRS said, and and then we'll talk about what that means to us in a practical manner because it sounds pretty straightforward when you hear what they said until you start thinking about all the different (laughs) places it could go. But what the IRS said, and they rely on the rules that we've always been governed by, which is our reliance on third-party information. That's always been an issue for practitioners is – how much reliance can you put on a third party's information? What work do you have to do? And it really comes down to, and it says, you don't have to audit it, but you have mm-hmm. to you know, feel comfortable that it's accurate. You have to factor in what you know or should have known or a contrary fact, like, hey, they didn't include the PPP loans. And so right. what the IRS has said is that in the case of the ERC, if you don't believe you can rely on the company or the facts that are presented to you, The fact that you're required to amend returns to reduce the wages, they're saying you should not amend those returns. Mm -hmm. They have used this terminology, which again leads to a lot of other questions, that by amending the returns, you are perpetuating a false claim. So what their reasoning is, is you should not do something, even though it's required by the law, If you know it's false, because then you are just playing into the, I guess, the representation made by the ERC mill. So what they're saying (laughs) is you should tell the client you're not going to amend the return. Obviously, they want you to turn into the IRS the name of the mill or the person or persons who did the claim. But you should not amend the return if you have reason to believe it's inaccurate. The, the, mm-hmm. that the credits were inaccurate that they received. Right. So that sounds that like, oh, well, there's the answer. But
1: Well, no, because that leads you to the next thing. So, So now it's incorrect. What are you going to do? Send right. back the money?
0: <laughs> well, yeah.
1: Tell the client to to send it back? Well, they don't even probably have it because they paid the ERC mill a fee for the preparation. So let's just say they got $100,000 in the credit. Well, they paid the ERC mill 20000 So now if they haven't spent the 80, which most probably have, they, to send that back is almost unrealistic.
0: Yeah. That's kind of what makes this unique in the tax world mm-hmm. because we've run into this situation before. We we're, The ERC's got such big dollars. We're acting like it's something different. But we've been faced many times where someone has come to us with something that's wrong, mm-hmm. and we're obligated, as we are in all cases with the ERC, to tell them it's wrong and tell them how they should fix it. And one of the the fixes is to go back and amend the claim, if you will, okay. but in this instance, to your point, Annie, most of these clients, if it was a hundred thousand, they probably only got eighty. If it was two hundred thousand, they probably only got a hundred and sixty. So you're asking the taxpayer to give back the hundred percent when they only got eighty percent or maybe seventy five or maybe they got eighty five. And it's just, for most people, it's not a practical solution. But that's one of the tools to that back. we usually use to kind of navigate through these problems that maybe there's some that'll do it. I don't know too many people that are willing to do that.
1: Well, I don't know. But, I mean, because the ERC mills are under such scrutiny, I bet some of them are close and shop. Even if you went back to them and, and you know, said, you know, that this was a false claim or this, isn't, this is incorrect, I mean, I don't even know if you could locate them.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting. You you keep teeing me up for something else. There was an (laughs) article in Accounting Today where they went to the insurance companies and kind of posed this problem. You know, as a practitioner, you're faced with these ERC claims. And what their concern is, is these mills came out of nowhere to generate all the claims. As soon as they've milked everybody for all the money, they're going to be gone. So when you send people back to these mills to fix the problem, they're nowhere to be found. And so, again, where does that leave us? I don't, really don't care. I think the IRS should go after these mills heavily and, and, and stop the craziness that they're creating. But what the insurance people have suggested is that you document your advice because the client's probably going to lose in here somehow. If, if it's truly mm-hmm. not a valid claim, they're probably not going to be willing to, as we just said, pay back 100% when they only kept 80 They're probably not going to be able to find the ERC mills. The penalties and interest when those claims are rejected are going to be massive. So Mm -hmm. the insurance companies are saying be very specific in telling your clients in writing the problem they're in and what they should do. And some of the insurance companies are even suggested a separate engagement letter. Now, if you're not going to do any work, I don't know what the engagement letter does, but... And it might
1: be too late for
0: that. Yeah, well, you're you're engaging. I guess what are you sending an engagement letter to say I'm not going to do something? I mean, usually you get the engagement letter to actually do something. But, but it's going to put us in a bind when we're dealing in people who we don't know and trust. Now, if the ERC came from a, a fellow person in the industry that you trust, that you believe knew the rules and followed them properly. Then sure, we, we need to amend the returns. We need to do all the work that the law requires us to do. It's, it's these pop up mills that are going to create mm-hmm. a problem. There, there's the other problem. How? What does when you say that amending a return perpetuates a claim? What else could perpetuate the claim? So, and, and we've just recently asked the IRS. You know, once you start asking for guidance, you just never stops because. <laughs> They give you some guidance, and then you need more guidance to clarify the guidance they just gave you.
1: <laughs> give but, me an example. Give me an FAQ. Give me
0: something more. Tell me, you know, okay, now this. Because the question that came to mind when they put this guidance out, if amending a return perpetuates a claim, does deducting the fees for a claim that's wrong and deducting those fees, does that perpetuate the claim?
1: And that's probably 2020. That's
0: 2022. 2022. That's probably, something yeah. you're seeing right now. So again, going back to our example, the the client got a hundred thousand dollar claim. They only got eighty, so they had twenty thousand dollars fees. Well, they paid twenty thousand, and I say their chances of getting it back are slim and none. But if I deduct that fee, have I perpetuated the claim by deducting the fee? that they shouldn't have paid because the claim wasn't any good. So we've asked for some guidance on that, and I'm sure we'll get that guidance, and it'll create some new questions that will keep going. So we're in kind of a catch-22 this filing season, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, we're in the home stretch, if you will. We've got, as we record this, we've got a little less than 30 days to go. But these are real-life problems, and and we're actually using this as probably a good lead-in into why extensions might be a wise thing (laughs) for us this year. because time might give us more answers and we just don't want to do something that gets us in a bind. I think the IRS is going to be lenient with us if we're trying, I would imagine. but how's the client going to look at us? And because mm-hmm. we're kind of damned if we do, damned if we don't. If we refuse to amend the return and the claim turns out to be valid, then the client's going to look at us and say, well, I got additional penalties and interest because you didn't do what the law said I had to do. You told me you wouldn't do it, and yet I should have done it. So, you know, uh, it's we're really catching hard it from both be. ends. So yep. Yep. this is a long way of leading into why one of the many reasons that extensions are there and they're valid is to kind of try to work through these kind of problems and, and see if we can get some guidance. But to wrap this up before we move into extensions, the one thing the IRS has said clearly— is and again, let me stress that the standard they're holding us to has always been our standard. This the reliance Circular on third-party information. What what is our responsibility before we can just accept third-party information? And so they're just going back to that and saying, if you're not comfortable, and and I've, it's been defined as the reliance doesn't have to be more likely than not but it's got to be one and again there's no way to measure this but if you can defend your position and win it one out of three times then it's considered reasonable so can you rely on the information to a level of confidence that if you had this battle three times you'd win it once if you've done that you've met your standard and you're okay i don't know how you know that because (laughs) this is new nobody my knowledge nobody's fought it but if right. you can't meet that standard, do not amend the returns. That's clear. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, we still have questions. And I'll go back now to what we said the topic of this was. We'll eventually be back to this topic as we talk about extensions because time may solve some of these questions. But right now, we don't have time. we got 20 Eight more days or 29 more days. Something
1: like that, yeah.
0: So I don't think we're going to get answers to all of our questions then. So, probably not. There you go. That's the ERC discussion for today. Two weeks That's from right. now, when we do this again, there'll probably be something new. But we might have something new. We might have something new. So let's get into what we said we were going to talk about, which is extensions, and then we'll cover some other IRS updates. So, any anyway, why don't you kick off? I think everybody got on this it. podcast or listening to this podcast knows what an extension is. I hope so.
1: Yes. And today we're focusing on the individual, right. the personal extensions, the extension of the Form 1040. And the extensions have been around for a while. This is definitely not something new. In fact, some of you may remember when there used to be two right. extensions, a first and a second extension. Well, there, there's just one, and it's the Form 4868. Um, It allows for a six-month extension, basically for nearly any reason or for any reason, and that's the federal tax return, although most states do um, piggyback on the federal, so just double-check your your state, make sure um, some require you to file their own extension. But what it does is it just gives you an extra six months to file the return. Now, filing the return is a different word than filing and paying. The balance due. So this is an extension of time. It is not an extension of time to pay, so to say. But there's a, there's a lot of good things that come with an extension. I mean, it's super easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't even have to get signatures on it. It's free. You get the form wherever. You don't have to provide an explanation of why you're getting an extension. You just file the extension. Um, you can do it on paper. You can e-file it. Um, and like I said, a lot of the states you know, accept that federal extension. So it's not, it's not a bad thing. It, it doesn't, it's not a negative thing. It doesn't look bad to you as a taxpayer. It doesn't necessarily look bad to you as a tax preparer. Um, but anything else, Roger, anything well, else I, mean, I, on I that? think
0: We understand that. I think taxpayers don't understand what an extension is because mm-hmm. we've all gotten the call, hey, Annie, I'm going to be a little late. Can you just file an extension? thinking that it's just sending a piece of paper and everything just goes on hold until I get around to it. But as you mentioned, it's not an extension of time to pay. So there are some rules as it relates to how much money has to go in if the goal is to avoid penalties and interest. Now, if you just want the IRS to go away till October 15th, you can just send the form in and they'll assume you know what you're doing until you file the return. Then they'll realize, well, I didn't make sense. So, um, right.
1: I mean, there's late payment penalties, there's underpayment penalties, Um, you know, and some of those apply if you owe money, obviously. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you're at higher risk for audit. No. Um, You should definitely file the extension, even if you don't have a dollar to send it in, don't not file an extension just because you don't have the money to pay. Even if it says on the extension that you're estimating you owe $10,000, but you can't send any in, still file the extension. Um, That will at least prevent the late filing penalty of the tax return. That'll give you your six months to gather the paperwork. Which can
0: be more than the late payment. So it's really important. Oh, yeah, yeah. To to get that form filed.
1: Yeah. And there are some clients who – it generally makes sense, right? So if you're waiting on, let's say, a K1 from a flow-through entity, you technically, you don't have what you need to file the return and extension makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. Or, I don't know, a brokerage statement that you know is incorrect and it's getting amended or 1099R that had the wrong code in it or something. And so you're waiting on, let's say, some corrected version or modified version. Um, And so, I mean, there are times when extensions make a lot of sense, even if you have everything you need right now and you're just waiting on something else. You should never just kind of estimate what you think that form is going to say and then file because that's just going to cause a matching notice and more trouble down down the way. So don't don't throw numbers on the tax return just because you don't have the actual form. Wait for the correct documentation, file the extension if need be, then complete the return before the extended deadline.
0: Yeah, and and as I said, clients, taxpayers don't seem to understand that there has to be some thought that goes into the extension. Mm-hmm. They just think I can be lazy, I can procrastinate, an annual extension file extension every month, fine.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: and and don't let that burden fall on you. If someone literally has not brought you one piece of paper, and it's April the seventeenth. And they call you and say, hey, Annie, how about filing my extension, and you don't have anything to base it on, then what are you going to do? Because we know that there has to be some thought that goes into it, and and we can talk about it in more detail. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be exact. Mm -hmm. but. The way I've always handled that, and then, Annie, you tell me about you. If someone literally, I've known them for years and I've done their return, but they haven't showed up and they call me on April 17th and say, hey, file an extension, I'm going to say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you the form because I don't have any (laughs) idea how to put any numbers on it. Right, right. And you put something on it and send it in by April the 18th, in case this year, because I don't want the responsibility for the penalty because I made assumptions about what they would owe or wouldn't owe. And What they paid in. What, what they whatever. paid in, and, and I know nothing. So what I have always done, and, and then I'll let you talk about it, is in those instances where I have nothing to base it on, nothing, then I'll, I'll furnish them the form or forms if the state requires one, and mm-hmm. I'll say, you know, I don't know what to put on it other than your name and address, so you've got to get within 90% of what you think you're going to owe, so... Here's the forms. Make sure they get postmarked and keep a copy. Now, yeah, yeah. Annie, would you, would you do anything different?
1: Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, there's different scenarios. So, like, if I if this taxpayer knows that they always get refunds and everything's the same, and so you know, those kind of scenarios. So, tax practitioners, we, we are slammed at this time. We. There's a reason that we also file extensions. It's not just because our clients might be waiting on something, but as a tax practitioner, spreading the workload over through the summer months, I mean, one, avoids mistakes. Everyone is tired. Um, If there's a really complex uh, issue with a particular client and you need to do research on it, instead of spending hours and hours of research, put that one on extension, do an extension estimate, and then focus on that when you're not as busy. Maybe we were just talking about the ERC. If we're waiting on guidance about something, we need something more from the IRS to feel comfortable in filing the return, use the extension. Again, estimate, complete the extension form, and, and send it in. Like we said, you know, if a taxpayer doesn't owe, then there's not going to be penalties and interest on that. I mean, there would you need to file the extension to meet the deadline, but there won't be additional penalties and interest on an amount owed because you don't owe anything. I mean, there have been times when I've called up family members or friends and been like, hey, guys, I'm filing an extension for you. I didn't get around to it. You generally, you know, not going to owe any money, so there's not going to be any penalties and interest. I'll do it next week or the week after. It doesn't have to be six months. Um, You could do the return the day after the deadline. Um, So, I mean, there's different different scenarios, you know, whose stuff's been sitting there the longest, who maybe, what if they hadn't paid you for the prior year? Well, I'm not going to make them a priority. Nope. You know, they still owe me for the tax preparation from the year before. And and let me tell you, there are a couple of clients that if I file an extension and that means that they no longer want to use me as a tax tax preparer, I'm okay with that because there are a couple that are real pains mm-hmm. and I'm okay with them if they ended up going somewhere else. So there's all kind, you know, it's from the taxpayer side, it's from the tax practitioner side. Um, but to get back to your point, when for the partnerships and the S corps those are our flow through entities those extensions are just forms that extend the time they don't have to they don't pay tax right so right. they don't have to estimate what their what their estimated liability would be how much have you paid in through withholdings or estimated tax payments or refunds applied from previous years they don't have to fill in those three lines that say how much tax do you have? How much have you paid in? Is there a refund? Are you expecting a refund or a balance due? So it's easy to just sort of file those extensions for the partnerships and the S Corps. But for individuals, it takes a little bit more thought. Um, and Roger, you touched on it a little bit when you said that you do need to take some steps in calculating what to pay in order for that extension to not only be valid, but to avoid it being... Penalties and yeah. Penalties
0: and interest, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in theory, to do an extension properly, you should have all the information necessary to do mm-hmm. the return. And, and maybe that's what they thought when they created extensions. Well, you got everything, you just don't have enough time, so you should yeah. be able to make a good guesstimate and file the extension right. until you get around. But the reality is, in many instances, and you've touched on a lot of them, the reason mm-hmm. the return's not done is because we don't have a, all the information to make a good estimate. Right. But right. We do have kind of a 10% margin of error, if you will. So
1: And I feel like that's pretty pretty lenient. I don't think if it was 12% or 15% or something. I mean, we're talking about real blatant didn't give it any thought, couldn't even put on what they, you know, asked what they paid on their W2. Right. I mean, that's kind of
0: but you do, yeah. you do have to make some estimate, and, and you've yeah. got to try to put some real thought into it so that you're—and that, again, a lot of this is just understanding your clients and your clients understanding what an extension really means, mm-hmm. and, and that if we just throw withholdings as what we think they're going to owe, and they owe triple that, that that's, you know, there's going to be penalties in interest. and interest. And I think another thing you mentioned that I think sometimes we don't think about is use it for your own good. You know, if if you yeah. just need to spread the work out, some uh, extensions are they're there for a reason. Again, they're not exactly. looked down on. They don't increase your chances of audit. Think about who you're going to extend. Make sure they're comfortable. Some taxpayers are petrified that an extension guarantees them an audit, and I don't care. And how some, many some times don't care at talk, all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can. First of all, nobody's getting audited, much less the people that file extensions. So, but they're petrified of it. So. Pick somebody else, you know, look for people who have no tax liability. So the guess is, is right. I mean, put a little thought into it, but use it if necessary. If you, get, you have an illness in your staff or yourself or something comes up or the, mm-hmm. the workload is just piling in at the last minute, don't kill yourself. Use the tools that are there, and extensions are a tool that is there, but do it with some thought. Think about mm-hmm. what clients are okay with it. What clients can I best do an estimate with the most confidence in my, you know, just think about it. Don't just start willy-nilly throwing extensions out, mm-hmm. you know. And, and certainly
1: don't go filing blank extensions like you mentioned earlier. That's no. That's really last-ditch effort like I
0: mean, again, I don't, you know, the client can do whatever they want to. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to take some thought in terms of, mm-hmm. and again, everything comes back, and we talked about it in the ERC, make sure, I think one of the things we don't do well enough is communicate with clients. Silence from us gives the impression that doing anything is okay. Mm-hmm. you right. So if you get that phone call, hey, Annie, file me an extension, and you don't say anything, you don't have any discussion, they're going to hang up and assume everything's okay. Mm-hmm. and. Then sure. they're going to be shocked in October. Well, not October, because they won't know the penalty in October when they file. But when they file in October, and then later on, this big penalty shows up. Notice shows up. Whether and, and This is when you realize which your clients are friends and which are not. When that big penalty shows up 60 days later, they're going to blame it on you. Because they're going to tell you, if you'd have told them this, they would have gotten all the information. Now, the fact that they mm-hmm. haven't gotten you all their information on time in the last 10 years... They won't think about that, but they're going to blame (laughs) it on you because you didn't make it a point. You didn't talk to them about it. You didn't drive home the message that I can do that, but here's what I need, or here's what the rules are, and here's what you need to understand is going to happen if if this is not close, if this is just a stall tactic or whatever. And it shouldn't be because you don't have the money to pay because there's other ways to deal with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. Uh, there are penalties associated. And and I did look these up just to double check before we were talking today. But there's a failure to file, a failure to pay, and an underpayment penalty. Those are, I mean, there's lots of other types of penalties. Um, but these are the three most common, you know, you're not right. into fraud or, or... So you've got the failure to file penalty, which you would have to pay 5% of the amount due per month. And that has it maxes out at like 25 percent or something but,
0: right
1: yeah and then you've got the failure to pay and that's 0.5 percent of the unpaid balance again per month up to 25 percent and then there's the underpayment penalty meaning you didn't pay enough in and that's got you know at the federal interest rates they, they're applied um, for the number of days late so there's three things to consider there. Now, the failure to file, that's, that's easy. You just file the extension and then meet the extension deadline. That one's relatively easy to uh, avoid. Failure to pay is you didn't, send, you, know, you didn't pay the balance due. So as you're thinking about extensions, they have what they call safe harbors, which at least, let's say, protect you from the time of the extension until you file the return if you pay enough in. Um, so, you've got um, the 90% rule, which is you pay 90% of the tax on the current year return. So, if we're talking about this year, if you estimated your income and your tax liability and what you paid in, when you file the extension, as long as you send in 90% of the amount of the tax liability on the current year return, you're okay. Yeah. 100% from the prior year return. So, if you looked at your 2021 return, and you looked at the total tax liability, as long as you pay in 100% of that, then you're okay. Now, if your AGI on last year was over 150000 they moved that 100% to 110%. So there's, there's, a, there's some safe harbors, let's say, that can assist you when you're trying to calculate what you need to send in with extension.
0: And remember, these penalties, each of those safe harbors apply to different things. One's with estimated tax, yeah. one's with the extension. So, you know, right. think through all this. You know, but, you know, really, the only time I think an extension is a negative is when it's a signal that you and your firm are just not with it. That the mm-hmm. only reason these forms are being filed is because you just can't get around to getting your work done. You have everything you need. You've had it for an extended period of time, you know, because, again, we hear these stories. I took everything to my tax preparer in February, and they still filed an extension. Now, again, short of an extraordinary circumstance, you know, natural disaster, health or something, extensions can send the wrong message because a lot of people don't want it. They, They may have refunds coming. And they want their money, yeah, they
1: want their money, yeah, and yeah. and
0: so don't allow extensions to send a negative message about your business, but other than that, there are a they are a very common and useful tool, and yeah. we should use them, but use them wisely and smartly, and make sure our clients are understanding what it means to file an extension. It doesn't mean you're going to get an audit. It doesn't even mean you'll get a penalty, but there are rules you have to follow.
1: Yeah, and and it's not uncommon that you, you know, get a notice for penalties. And, and the IRS does. There's something called a first-time abatement penalty. There's the reasonable cause. So, I mean, even with penalties and interest, you know, as long generally you might be able to respond to a notice and say, you know, our failure to file or to pay or make deposits—you um, know, this is the first time we've ever missed a deadline or uh, underpayment or something like that. There's a first time. First time. Yeah. Um, first time. That's there, and then obviously reasonable cause. I mean, if you can explain why the situation occurred, generally those are more health issues or relied on a professional um, and got poor advice or something like that. Right.
0: Another kind of interesting scenario that leads into another thing we need to talk about is you get the return done, and Mm -hmm. you show it, and they owe $30,000. And they Mm -hmm. go, I don't have $30,000 filing extension, (laughs) so I don't have to pay it till October. That's not what the extension is for. (laughs) But again, that's the taxpayer's mentality that all I do when I file the extension is push everything back to October 15th. With no consequences mm-hmm. of doing so. Mm-hmm. So, what we need to talk about now is in those situations, because we all are going to have them, where people get the returns done. It's not they need an extension because we've got the information, but they can't pay the tax. So, what do we do in that situation? Because, again, just filing extension and kicking the can down the road till October 15th is going to make that balance due go higher. It's not going to make yep. it go away, and it's, it's not the IRS just saying, "Well, okay, so wish we'd have known mm-hmm. this earlier, but okay." Well, so talk about some things that we can do in that situation. If if it's really not about the information, it's really not about the return being prepared. I just can't pay it.
1: Yeah, and and the IRS is aware of that and has been dealing with that for years and years, and and they have payment plans, installment agreements. There's some that are. Um, for personal and for business, um, some, you know, have different time frames. you know, if you think you can pay it back in the short term in the long term within hundred and eighty days, um, all of these things come into play. but um, there's a there's an automatic online application that you can just jump online um, if you owe fifty thousand dollars or less, and that includes the tax and and the penalties, the penalties and, and the interest, interest. in right. that in that. Um, and you've, you know filed all the the tax returns you can get an installment agreement, Um, a short term version of that would be 180 days. um, And that is if you owe 100,000 in combined tax penalties and interest. So there's thresholds for the amount that you owe, there's timeline for when you think you can pay. um, There's, you know, they can auto with uh, take it out of your account. um, You can write checks, you can negotiate different terms, if need be. And then there's also the option for offer and compromise, um, so that's another, th- you know, way to to pay your your balance due. Now that's way more complicated. You have to submit lots of documentation. There's a pre file qualifier tool on the IRS. Um, so you know, it's more of like something has happened. You don't even have assets that could um, be used to support your your balance due. I guess. Um, so, I mean, they they try to help you out. I'm not saying that. Everybody's going to get this automatic application. But put it, you know, getting an installment agreement and getting into a payment agreement is, is one way to go. And at least it stops the, the notices from coming and the penalties and interest from increasing.
0: And there are some fees. You know, it's not free. Yeah, there are. I mean, not paying your taxes right. on time has cost. There is the form, and I'm sure it's in almost every tax software out there, that you can actually send with a return for an installment agreement. Now, again, mm-hmm. if you've got people that owe hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's different than if somebody owes 10000 and can't pay it. You can literally file with the t- return the installment agreement form and set up a payment plan. You're going to have to give them right there. You yep. know, the information, and there's a fee. But So the point being is don't let someone who can't pay it think that extending and filing does anything but make the problem worse. Deal with the issue of, well, how much can you pay? When can you pay it? How much can you afford? I mean, obviously, you're going to have to pay it. You're not just going to... I mean, I guess you could, if you thought you had an offer and compromise reason, you know, that's that was probably the precursor to the ERC mills as all the people on TV yeah, saying they can yeah. get you out for cents, $0.10 cents oh, on a dollar or something like that. I still hear those. Yeah, they're still out I there. Still but mm-hmm. for the most part, our clients have tools to be able to pay the taxes with the return and go ahead and deal with it. Now... Annie mentioned those online tools. Those are available as well if you're in the collection process and you've got past due balances. There are <laughs> it's it's what, fifty thousand for an individual and twenty-five for business. So that's right. If you're dealing with a client that has some past due taxes and again including penalty and interest, those online tools are not just available when you file the return. They're available to any individual who's gotten behind. Now you can yeah. get above fifty thousand. But you're gonna to have to document it, you're gonna to have to negotiate with the IRS and do those sorts of I things. I think you have
1: to send in some additional documentation. Yeah, there's more, but it's, it's a little bit more complex. But, but if it's and if you that this is the type of thing like let's say in you owe for t- 2020, 21, and now 22, they'll combine all of that together, update the, the payment plan. So, you know, even if a client comes to you and they're already on an existing plan, on an existing payment plan with the IRS. You know, you can still work with that plan um, and and combine any balances due. Yeah.
0: So, again, use extensions when they're necessary, when they're helpful, Mm -hmm. both for the taxpayer or the practitioner. Put some thought into it. Don't just mass send out blank extensions. Don't confuse extensions with paying because there's additional tools for paying and explain
1: those. that to the clients yeah. communicate with the clients so that they know what you're doing and why you need it and why it matters why do you need the information
0: yeah it's 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 the discussions that we have with clients that makes us different you know if all you mm-hmm. do is take numbers and put them on a tax form you're just a human calculator and you know, that's really <laughs> all you are because you're just plugging numbers into software and calculating it's these discussions and these making our clients knowledgeable taxpayers that should make us better at what we do and, and, mm-hmm. and more valued to our customers. So, mm-hmm. again, use extensions when extensions need to be used. Use the payment tools and plans when they can be used. Use them in combination with mm-hmm. each other. But talk mm-hmm. to clients. We talked about the ERC. Explain the issue to them. You know, They trust us. They rely on us. But that's no good if we never talk to them and we just – crunch numbers and give them completed documents and assume all the stuff that we know they know because they don't. Yeah, If no, they did, they no. wouldn't be coming to you. So,
1: And take a deep breath, move slow, avoid right. errors, look at your client list, look at your staff's capability, capacity,
0: and then figure out what you can do. And, and if one thing COVID taught us the last few years, <laughs> it's the tax season's never end. So oh. why not use extensions? That's all I heard during COVID. Well, tax season <laughs> never ends. Tax season never ends. Well,
1: this is the longest tax season ever. This is, is what the longest I heard. tax season
0: I've ever had. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So if you've so, gotten yeah. used to that, and use extensions, and just spread it out, it doesn't have to end April eighteenth. It can. It can end yeah. June eighteenth. It can end July eighteenth. That's. It's up right. to you. Don't kill yourself. You know, go. You know, use the tools that you're disposal to make your life better and and help clients. So hopefully you heard this and it'll make your life a little easier before the end of this filing. It is kind of nice though to know April 18th means the end of something, but I don't know if that's...
1: It feels good to get to that deadline, but then you still look over and you've got a pile of, of stuff still to get through. But...
0: Yeah, just something nice. you said earlier, because you still get this from some people, they still think there's that second extension. So when it gets to October fifteenth, they'll call you and say, Hey, I need the second extension. Well Yeah. Doesn't exist anymore. So, <laughs> exactly. so don't exactly. wait for that one. I know. Anything else on extensions and payments? Yeah.
1: Oh, on extensions and payments. No, I think I think we covered that. A uh, reminder to check your states with your extension. Right. Um, they can be e-filed. Make sure that the you know the payments get mailed. If you're doing it by mail, check the address. Make sure it goes to the right place. Um, keep a copy for your records. Make sure that the client has a copy for theirs. No, I mean I think we I think we hit the the basics. Yeah, I, I think, I think got most,
0: it. If you've done if you've been in this business for any length of time, this is something you've you've done. It's not this mm-hmm. isn't anything new. But yeah. maybe put a different approach to it and put a little more thought into it and use it to your benefit and make your clients' tax season and your tax season maybe a little better. Mm-hmm. As always, we, want, we try to leave time at the end to kind of talk about stuff that has come out. Some of it has come out within the last couple of weeks since we did the last mm-hmm. podcast. Some we've just been sitting yep. on. So where do you want to start on news from the IRS?
1: Um, I guess let's start with the information returns, the e-filing requirements for the information returns. Right. Beginning at, well, on January of 2024, so the beginning of the year, all tax practitioners who file more than 10 informational returns, I think that number was, was it
0: 250? Yeah,
1: 250. That is now decreased all the way to 10. And that's not like 10 W-2s or 10 1099s, it's in the whole series. So if you do five W-2s and eight 1099s, well, you've passed the threshold you need to e-file. So that's going to be a change um, that just consider it. Keep it in the back of your mind. Think about your your business processes. That is something that um, you probably need to... Uh, Give some thought to as you as we approach the end of the year.
0: Yeah, because this is, again, the continuation of trying to get as much of information into the IRS electronically as Mm -hmm. they can, because as we saw during COVID, when paper comes in, it can get backlogged in good times. You know, it's it's awful during a. Pandemic, but even in good times, Mm -hmm. too much paper. So, we're going to see this continued pressure to do things electronically. So, it's a pretty big jump to go from two hundred fifty to ten. And there's a lot of tools. The IRS has a tool for e-filing ten ninety nines. There's a lot of good products Mm -hmm. out there for ten ninety nines, W twos. Just don't wait until December to start thinking about this. (laughs) This may be a good time if you've got clients who. Uh, need to switch to a payroll service like an ADP, Paychex or whatever, Mm -hmm. Gusto, all those places where they take on the responsibility. But if you are responsible currently for preparing those W-2s or 1099s, come January – You're probably going to need to do those things electronically. If you've never done that before, it's going to take you a while to figure it out, be set up, be organized. So just don't wait till the last minute. Get through tax season and then maybe Mm -hmm. look at your client list and decide who this is going to impact and and start that discussion with them while you have plenty of time.
1: Communicate before it's too late to make the change, to implement the new steps, the process. And with your staff, too. It might require you to do some training with your staff or invest in some other technology or software, or and just get like prepared. That,
0: so. These kinds of things are, yeah. you know, change. Most people don't like change, but hey, it's <laughs> happening.
1: Happens. What about RMDs? Just,
0: what, you oh, know, RMDs.
1: What yeah, no, we can go. We can go there. It's just that April first, so it's coming up just in a couple of days. Um, those uh, taxpayers who reach age seventy-two during twenty twenty-two, there's a special rule that allows them. Um, to take their first distribution in April of 2023, and then they'll take the next one at the end of the year. So it's kind of weird. It's just for those, it's a two payment in a single year for those who reach 72 during 2022. So the April 1st RMD deadline applies to the required distributions for the first year, and then all later years are going to be on December 31st. So if you've got a client who's asking questions about when they need to take that distribution and they reached age 72 during 2022, just remember there're special rules for that particular situation. And, and
0: you may have two RMDs in 2024 if you defer the 2023 into 2024.
1: You can do right.
0: Senseless plug for our last podcast, go back and listen to our <laughs> yeah, discussion of yeah. the Secure Act 2.0 because these RMD rules are changing. Um So, uh, but yes, if they're turning 72 this year, they can kick it into next year, but they still are required to take one for next year. So there's some planning opportunities if those Mm -hmm. RMDs are substantial in amounts as to whether you're better off to kick it into next year and have two versus take one before the December of this year and then take the 2024 next year. Yep. Double up. <laughs> right. Don't double up or double up. Whatever's in your <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, there in you your go. Best That's probably interest. easier to say. Yeah. You can you
0: double ahead. up or you cannot. What else? I mean. I'd...
1: So I meant to mention earlier when we were talking about um, you know underpayment and penalties and interest and getting notices from the IRS. Um, many taxpayers probably don't know that there's something called the taxpayers. Bill of Rights. Right. Um, and, and there's 10 of them. And basically, it's, you know, the right to be informed, the right to privacy, the the right to um, a fair and just taxism. And, and they go on. But it's kind of interesting. If you've never gone and read them, you can just go to the IRS website, type in taxpayers' bill of rights, and they'll list the 10 of them. And, and um, it's something that I feel like tax practitioners probably know, but probably have never communicated, you know, that your clients have such things as Bill of Rights. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. I wanted to mention that.
0: Yeah, no, it is interesting, and particularly in in issues where maybe you're helping a client who owes the IRS money. Mm -hmm. You know, we think because we know how to prepare taxes, we know how to represent clients when they owe money. Collection and representation rules are very different than knowing how to prepare the return originally. Mm -hmm. And and it's important to sometimes know what those rights are in, in a Particularly in a collection environment, yep. where you know what they can do, what they, what they what they what the IRS can do, what the IRS can't do, what rights the taxpayer has, you know, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. So, yeah, the, the it's it's important to to understand again, particularly in the collection realm of what we do, what rights the taxpayers have because they do have them.
1: Mm-hmm. They do, they do, and I think it's important for the for your clients to know that. I yeah.
0: really do. Yeah. What else?
1: Um, So just, uh, let's see, a couple of reminders I can think of. Be sure to use that Where's My Refund tool. Refunds are generally issued within the 21 days. There are certain types of returns that maybe take longer, you know, for identity theft factors or maybe the earned income credit or additional child tax credit, those kinds of things sometimes take longer. Um, However, 21 days seems to be realistic. Where's My Refund is out there, so that's um, a great place to go. you know, first stop there. And that'll show you, um, it has three different stages. So when you log in, you put social and what you owe and blah, blah, blah. How'd you file your filing status? It'll say, you know, return received. And then the next step would be, you know, refund approved and then refund sent. So you can kind of see the the progress of the um, processing of the tax return. So, um, you know, I don't know if you've got that out on your website or if you tell your clients about it, but it's yeah, I was probably say, prevents put it on them web- from giving you a phone call.
0: <laughs> yeah, put it on <laughs> it's your to website. Say, where, is where is it? Where is it? And a lot of states have the same thing. Yeah, uh, they do. And, and so when they're going to your website to find your phone number to call you to ask you, where the hell's my refund? You know, right yeah. next to your phone number maybe should be a little thing. If you're calling to find out your refund, go here instead. Cause Click here. <laughs> that's all I'm <laughs> yeah. going to do if you call me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean that's all really we we can do other than getting on the phone and sitting on hold and and all of that. So yeah, so make sure um, your
0: website's up to date.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, Roger, I think that's all I've got, unless there's something that came across your desk or.
0: Well, I'm going to put a tease in. I don't know when we're going to mm-hmm. talk about this because there's still some. We're still. We, it seems like we're waiting on guidance on a lot of things, but I don't think we can do polls on a podcast because we wouldn't know what you answered. <laughs> yeah, but no. I'm going to gamble that most of the people listening to this podcast do not know what the Corporate Transparency Act of 2020 is. I have to admit that until a few weeks ago, I really wasn't sure what it was. But if you I mean, work with small businesses, there is something in this act that's going to impact all of this. This is, the, this is the first bill like this where I saw the exemption is for large companies, not small. We we tend to mm-hmm. think that a lot of things happens that our smaller, small businesses, well, they're exempt because they're small. Actually, yeah. this is the opposite. You're exempt from these rules if you're large, not if you're small. That's a tease, so you'll listen to a future podcast when we talk about it because we are still waiting for some guidance. But I can say this. Uh, by the next year, fortunately, we've got the rest of this year. It's going to impact just about a hundred percent of your small businesses, and if you, particularly, if you are involved in helping form companies, like if you set up LLCs or set up corporations for your clients, this is really going to impact you. So, uh, you can go do some research on your own. You can wait till Annie and I come and talk about it, but we're we're trying to wait. We were supposed to have guidance, more guidance on it than we do so we're going to kind of hold off but just a little tease the corporate transparency act of 2020 and we're in what 2023 and we still don't have all the rules yeah. yet so
1: we don't have all the rules and it doesn't take effect until the beginning of next year but but you can't wait till then for you this you would
0: think one 3 sure. years would have been enough time to come <laughs> up with all the rules but now we're going to cram them all we're going to cram them all into the end of 2023 so we'll come back with that we'll uh, we'll obviously continue to come back with podcast we hope you're enjoying these. We hope you'll tell your friends about it, you know, as as you say yeah, we're available wherever you get your podcast. So That's right. So we hope you'll keep listening and and send us ideas if there's topics you'd like us to consider. You know, we'll yeah. if we are qualified, we'll do it. If not, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else, Annie? We done? No,
1: that's That's a lot of information. So um, hope you enjoyed it. Hope to see you on another one.
0: Yeah, hang in there. Depending on when you're listening to this, either congratulations, you made it, or (laughs) hang in there for a few more days. It's almost over. So
1: It's almost over.
0: Well, Annie, as always, pleasure to to do this with you. Thank you for all you do. Annie does all the work on this. So (laughs) if you like what we're talking about, she gets all the credit.
1: Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to do this.
0: All right. Well, again, thanks for listening. Again, join us again on another Federal Tax Update podcast, and we will see you in a couple of weeks.